Today on Blue 58, the Packers appear to be ready to change quarterbacks, but they're probably not in the market to draft one early this year. I know, stop me if you've heard that one before. Still, it's worth our time to ask some of the big questions that come with making a pick at the most important position in the sport. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdank, happy to be with you here for another episode. Nothing has happened since we last spoke as far as Aaron Rodgers and the Packers go, so we're going to spend some time talking about quarterbacks. Well, quarterbacks other than Aaron Rodgers. We need to get caught up a little bit on the Packers' efforts in free agency first and foremost, so let's break down, at least in roughly sequential order, what has happened for the Packers so far. First out of the gate, Keyshawn Nixon is back with the team. Great news. Little surprise that it wasn't a one uh, multi-year deals, but sometimes prove-it deals do exist. So he gets a chance to show that his one year as an elite kickoff returner and punt returner was not a fluke. Probably will get some more action uh, on defense playing the slot. Seems like a good opportunity for him. Seems like a, a great get for the Packers. Next significant piece of news is Alan Lazard is out the door to the New York Jets. I don't think that catches anybody really by by all by surprise in any significant way. Uh, if you're a huge Alan Lazard fan, you probably wish he could have gotten a little bit more money. The wide receiver market has been a little bit slow in free agency, just as, a, as an observation there, but good to see him cash in. You talk about a self-made man as an NFL player, starting from undrafted, working his way to be a significant part of the Packers offense, uh, taking over as their top receiver, admittedly in a year where their passing offense wasn't all that great, and then cashing in, uh, getting his probably one big money deal uh, with the New York Jets. Good for him. He's come a long way and he deserves every cent of it. Yash Nyman gets the restricted free agent tender that we all expected he would get. Completely unsurprising here. I do kind of wonder if someone takes a run at him, just looking how crazy the offensive line market has been in free agency so far. It's rare. It does happen, but not all that often. If someone did offer, I kind of think I'd be inclined to take the second round pick. You do have options on the offensive line, especially with David Bakhtiari coming back. You're probably not re-signing him to a big money deal next spring anyway. I don't know, just me. Maybe you try again with the second round pick. If you can get somebody comparable to Yash Nyman in the draft this year, you're probably coming out ahead contract-wise just because of how long you control that player. Worth thinking about, I think. Chris Barnes, next piece of news to drop. Uh, he is out the door. Fine, whatever. Uh, depth, line, depth at linebacker is nice to have. But he is not a need-to-have player at this point in his career, given what else the Packers have at linebacker. They, of course, have Devondre Campbell. They've got Quay Walker. And most importantly, they already have Isaiah McDuffie. Strictly as a linebacker, I think Chris Barnes is probably better than McDuffie. But McDuffie, I think, has overall value that surpasses Barnes because of what he can offer on special teams. To say nothing of what they do on defense, McDuffie is certainly a better special teams player than Barnes is just because he's a better athlete. So I think that leaves the Packers feeling not all that bad about missing out on Chris Barnes. Tyler Davis is back. Got to have somebody at tight end. It pains me to say, but I've cooled a little bit on Tyler Davis. I think he is what he's going to be at this point. But the fact is the Packers just don't have any tight ends right now, really. And we'll get into one of their other losses here in a second. But it's a, you got to have some. 
and he's a core special teams player right up near the top in terms of overall special team snaps, a reliable blocker on special teams. This might be a, a Rich Bisaccia signing as much as anything else. Speaking of signings from Mr. Bisaccia, associate head coach or assistant head coach Rich Bisaccia, we, we should say now, the Packers have a new long snapper in Matt Orzech. He came over from the Los Angeles Rams. Would have to think he's already the odds-on favorite to be the long snapper next year, given that he signed a three-year deal. The path to this point has been a little bit long and winding, but that's the way things go a lot of times for long snappers until you find a place where you really fit in. He originally signed with the Ravens as an undrafted free agent, but he spent the 2019 season with the Jacksonville Jaguars after he was cut by the Ravens. Then he was cut by the Jaguars in the 2021 preseason, briefly spent some time with the Tennessee Titans, and then was with Los Angeles for the last two years. He appeared in all 34 games, logged four tackles on special teams during that time. Overall reaction here, sure, why not? There really aren't any sort of metrics on gauging long snappers, measuring their their performance and things like that. That seems like an opportunity for an enterprising young film grinder. Maybe that's something I need to do myself. But you you see those like pitch placement maps that they have for every pitcher in Major League Baseball, like real time. It seems like you could probably do something like that for charting snaps. And I'm sure that NFL teams probably do something along those lines. It seems like from even TV copy, though, at least on field goal and, and point after attempts, that you could probably chart where a guy's snaps are ending up. And if you are looking at, like, say you're looking through the goalposts, one of the things that I noticed um, a lot on on Jack Coco's snaps is that Pat O'Donnell this past year especially had to reach down into his right a lot to make sure that the ball could, well, could get back to where it needed to be so that they could attempt the kick. I think you could probably do something like that. I'm surprised that it doesn't exist. I wasn't able to find anything as I was looking for for some information about Orzic here. It should probably be out there. We need some more stats on long snappers because it's an important enough position and teams are cycling through enough of them. I mean, just look at the Packers. They've cycled through, what, three now in the last two years, if you count Orzic in there. You've got Hunter Bradley, Jack Coco, and now a third guy. It would be worth somebody's time to figure out who is how accurate and how, how solid and consistent a guy's snaps are. Finally, uh, Robert Tunyon is on his way to Chicago, signing with the Bears on a one-year deal. I don't really feel all that hung up on losing Tunyon. He wasn't the same player in 21 that he was in 2020, and then he tore his ACL, and it doesn't look like he ever really got all the way back to where he was pre-injury. Now, judging him by that 2020 season is kind of unfair, too, because that was just a huge statistical outlier in terms of the number of tight, uh, of touchdowns he caught. But still, a good, efficient season that year, and he's never really been able to get back to that. And for a guy who is a little bit undersized, whose entire game is athleticism. I think any amount of decline in athleticism is a big concern. And with the the torn ACL now two years ago, it looks like he was not all the way back just yet. I think at this point you can move on and not consider him a big part of your future at tight end. But that does leave you in a position where now you really have to do something at tight end in the draft because you've got Tyler Davis, who is not going to be you know, at the top of the depth chart or or shouldn't be at the top of the depth chart. You've got Josiah DeGuara. 
And that's really it as far as known commodities. Now, we do have Austin Allen, who is formerly on the practice squad. Maybe he comes along here, but he's more of a, a receiving type tight end. You've got to have something here in the tight end room because the Packers currently have basically nothing. They're going to end up having to spend some draft capital at tight end here, which is very enjoyable to me as a tight end enthusiast. I think my enthusiasm for that position is very well known. But the Packers have to do something. Even if you didn't love Tunyon, even if you didn't think he was the answer for the Packers at the position, he may not have been. He still was a guy. You knew what you had in him. you got to have a certain number of guys. And even if Tunyon wasn't great, he was at least a guy who you knew he could play at a certain level. Now you've got entirely unknown commodities there outside of Deguara, and there are some concerns, Not maybe not concerns, that's probably not the right word, some limitations there in terms of what he can do just due to his size. The Packers are going to have to invest at tight end here. Hard pivot. Let's talk about quarterbacks. Like I said in the open, the Packers aren't really in a position where they need to draft a quarterback. Certainly you would think, even if they do add a quarterback, and I wouldn't rule it out, it's probably not going to be early. If they end up getting a first-round pick for Aaron Rodgers, they're probably not spending one of their two first-round picks on a quarterback. Stranger things have happened. Say you went to the NFC Championship game and drafted a quarterback the next spring. Can you imagine? Boy, that would probably set off like years of controversy, especially if you had an established starter. What a wild situation that would be. Anyway, just imagine you were in need of a quarterback. How would you decide what kind of quarterback was good? Well, you can look at all the film and things like that, really grind through stuff. That is the best approach. You've really got to get a feel for what a guy can do as a quarterback. But I think there are other factors here, especially when you're dealing with guys who are roughly of comparable quality. And when I say that, what I mean is a guy you could conceivably see yourself taking in the top half of the first round and not feel completely crazy about it. Now, that is a pretty wide, given where how the draft shakes out, that is a pretty wide margin still between number one overall and 15, 16. I understand that. But I'm just trying to say, you know, like early first round pick quarterbacks, by and large, you're, you're dealing with a pretty consistent talent pool there. What are the questions other than what does a guy look like on the field that you should be looking at? I've got a few, and I just want to talk through them as I, as I think about these things. Because the interesting thing about the quarterback class this year is that even beyond the first round, you've got a bunch of different kinds of quarterbacks facing a bunch of different kinds of questions. So let's ask some of those questions. The first one, right out of the gate, because it could affect who goes first overall, is how much does size matter as a quarterback? Bryce Young is the guy that comes to mind here. He is, heavy air quotes here, five foot ten and 204 pounds. If you believe those numbers, I know that's how he measured at the Combine. If you believe those are true and accurate numbers for his size, that is a take you are legally entitled to have. He's probably not that big. He was playing in the mid to low 190s in college. But how does it how much does it matter that he's pretty small and not just like small short, small as in slightly built. 
I think we're past the point where people are really convinced that it matters in terms of what you can do as a passer. And I have always been a little bit skeptical of that. But even now, that should be less of a concern than ever. Because if you're running more scheme-based stuff than pure dropback stuff anyway, you're probably getting out on the perimeter more. Like, say, just look at, at how the Packers have run their offense in the past couple of years, now less in 2022. But these wide zone play action based schemes, a lot of times your pocket is more like guard to outside shoulder of a tight end lined up on the line than it is like center guard tackle building out from there. The that is not an offense where you have, you know, Tom Brady dropping straight back, manipulating the pocket, small pocket movements, things like that. You're getting out on the perimeter. And I think more and more that's how the NFL game is played anyway, even if it's not in that Shanahan tree kind of scheme. You're playing on the perimeter more than in the pocket, or you're playing completely spread out and just staying in the pocket, sitting back there, reading your keys from behind an offensive line built of guys that are, if you're 5'10", seven inches taller than you. I don't know if that's as big of a concern as it once was, just because I don't know if that's how offenses play anymore. However, there's a different part of this question that I think does matter. How does a guy who is the size of Bryce Young hold up in the NFL? And I think this is where the weight matters, because you can be a fine football player at 195 pounds, but the kinds of hits you take are going to hit differently at 195 than they would at 215. Russell Wilson, for instance, is a short quarterback, but he's not a small quarterback. If you look at, many people have said this, if you look at Russell Wilson from, say, the middle of his chest to his knees, he's built like a baseball player because he was a baseball player, but he's built like a guy who's generating power from his cores, from his core and his butt and his thighs. He's strong through that part of his body. He carries a lot of weight and has a lot of strength, and that affects how he takes hits. Bryce Young, even if he is an exceptional athlete, and he is, just doesn't have that same kind of size. And I think that matters. Related to this is the question of whether size should be a disqualifier. And I don't think it really should, those caveats about weight aside. But I think all things being equal, where do you instinctively want to go? If you clone Bryce Young, and somehow through the magic of this fictional, you know, genetic processing ability, you left one Bryce Young at the original side and made his original size and made the clone six foot five and 230 pounds, but literally all of their other abilities were the same. Accuracy, arm strength, ability to process defenses, all of those things that go into being a quarterback. Which one would you pick? Do you pick the guy who's 5'10", 204, or the guy who's 6'5", and 230 pounds? I pick the big guy, and I don't entirely know how to say why. I think just instinctively you want to say the big guy is going to be better. Shoot, even make them the exact same speed. I can't exactly explain why I have that preference. Is that just the instinct, given that football is a big man's game? Do you just naturally assume the guy who is big is going to be better? I don't know. And I think you have to, even not having an answer, I think you have to think about that sort of thing, even if you don't know for sure, because trying to figure out why you think the way that you do is important. The second question that I want to look at is how much does your college program matter? 
This, to me, comes to mind because of C.J. Stroud. Obviously had a very productive career at Ohio State, but I have seen a lot of, I don't trust a guy who goes to Ohio State stuff, or I would never draft a quarterback who went to Ohio State. Some of the reasons behind that are good. Some of them are not so good. I think a lot of it boils down to the talent that Ohio State has relative to the rest of the Big Ten, and I think that's fair. However, helmet scouting is also a flawed proposition. But before we get to that exact issue, I think we do have to point out that if you did happen to say, I would never draft a guy who went to Ohio State, by and large, you would be correct in doing that. Say, dating back to the year 2000, just because you don't like Ohio State quarterbacks, you took every Ohio State quarterback off of your draft board and you just said, we are not drafting those guys. Who would you have missed out on? Who is the elite pro that you would have missed out on? There isn't one. Here is the list. Here are the, here are the Ohio State quarterbacks who have been drafted in the NFL draft since the year 2000. Steve Belisari in 2002. Craig Krenzel in 2004, Troy Smith in 2007, Cardale Jones in 2016, Dwayne Haskins in 2019, and Justin Fields in 2021. Now, even if you don't think Justin Fields is totally a bust right now, I think you could still say you would probably have come out ahead had you just spent your draft capital on almost anything else than an Ohio State quarterback. This is just a coincidence. You can change the name to anything else and have the same point that you wouldn't that it's a bad idea to scout by by helmets just say, "Oh, well these guys from this school are good, these guys from this school are bad." It's just funny that it happens to work out that Ohio State quarterbacks if you just said, "I don't want a guy from Ohio State," you just happen to have been correct. I think this is also an issue for a guy like Will Levis, where Stroud gets a boost from his supporting cast and the competition he may be playing against in the Big 10. Levis kind of has the opposite problem because playing for Kentucky and maybe not having the same supporting cast, people are still trying to say, well, he can, he can overcome those circumstances. He still should be considered, you know, somebody we might want to take a, a fairly or use a fairly high draft pick on. So what does it matter? What do you, how do you sort this out? How much does the college program that this guy came from really matter? Sports Information Solutions put together an interesting study where they tried to measure how impactful a guy's supporting cast was with some data. And they found that there is some merit to the idea that you should grade on different amounts of curvature based on the supporting cast around them. For instance, C.J. Stroud did have, by EPA, the second best receiving core in all of college football. Just by way of comparison, Will Levis had the 16th best, and Florida's Anthony Richardson, who we'll talk about in a different topic here in a second, had the 26th best. So all of Stroud's physical attributes aside, he was throwing to better receivers than just about any other prospect in the draft. Just to round it out, Bryce Young had the 11th best cast. But there's more to it than that as well, because by pass blocking, Sports Information Solutions found that Uh, Stroud, C.J. Stroud, had the 54th best pass-blocking unit in college football, which was the second worst among those top four quarterbacks, Stroud, Young, Richardson, and Levis. So the circumstances do seem to matter, because that is a pretty wide set of variables. There's more to it than this, too. Look at scheme. How easy does a guy's scheme make things for him? 
which is a big deal if you're box score scouting. If you're just looking at a guy's stats, you really have to consider what kind of throws he was making. One of the things Sports Information Solutions looked at was how many easy completions did a guy get? How do they quantify easy completions? Well, how often was his offense running screen passes? And how, how often were his wide receivers, his, his pass targets, wide open? They figured the screens for sure are a part of scheme. The, the wide open receiver is probably a part of scheme too. Using those numbers, just 24% of C.J. Stroud's passes were considered easy passes, according to Sports Information Solutions. Of those top four quarterbacks against Stroud, Young, Richardson, and Levis, that is the smallest amount. He did not get a whole lot of help from his supporting cast, from his coaches or from his teammates, at least in this area. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Bryce Young and Anthony Richardson, who both had 30% of their passes considered easy by this approach. And just to round it out, Will Levis had 29%. On average, and across all of college football, or the FBS level of college football, 27% of passes were considered easy. So C.J. Stroud actually had a below average amount of his passes qualified as easy. And just about all these other quarterbacks were throwing easier passes. And within those easy passes, Anthony Richardson's accuracy numbers were the worst of this group. I don't say that to make evaluative claims about any one of these receivers. I have not dug in, or of these quarterbacks, excuse me, I've not dug, dug into them enough to know. But I think it is important to find this kind of context when you're thinking about quarterbacks, because that is a big part of evaluating them, especially if you're looking at stats. Now, I want to take a quick aside here and give a shout out to three individuals. These three guys happen to be Patreon supporters, and this is a second where I want to take a second and plug our Patreon here. Clint Johnson. Barry and Jurgen Rother have all been faithful Patreon supporters for a while now, and I'm very grateful for your support. In fact, I'd be grateful to have your support here as well, because a big part of what you get with being a Patreon supporter, which you can do by or become by going to patreon.com slash the power sweep or by clicking the link in the show notes here, is access to our Discord server. And if talk about the NFL draft, whether we're how we're doing it in this episode, more of a philosophical approach or just digging into data and scouting reports and things like that, Whatever way you like it, the the Power Sweeps Discord server is a great place to do it because we've got some really sharp draft people in there, someone who some people who really dig deep into this stuff kind of on their own time. And I really respect that. There's people who really love to do the draft year round. And if you want to be a part of a group of people who like to do that kind of thing, consider supporting the Power Sweep and Blue 58 and getting access to a place where you can do that. At the same time, that seems like a win-win to me. Patreon.com slash the power sweep. Now back to quarterbacks. How much does athleticism matter? We talked about size. We talked about supporting cast. How much does pure athleticism matter? I bring this up because of Anthony Richardson out of Florida. Richardson is quite frankly an insane athlete. He's one of the very best in terms of pure athleticism that I think I've ever seen at the position. There have been other guys who have been faster. There have other, been other guys who have been, you know, comparable in terms of explosion, leaping ability, things like that. Few, if any, have had the complete total package that Richardson seems to have. He looks and moves and plays in a lot of ways like the sort of player that I used to create and name John Meerdink on Madden or NCAA football back in the day. 
And it was completely true to life, by the way. The attributes really carried over from real life into the game, just to clarify there. Uh, the arm strength, the speed, the, the athletic ability, basically where I was at in real life. Uh, much like Richardson, total package there, obviously. Uh, but jokes aside, Richardson, an incredible athlete. So my question is, all other things being equal, like we talked about with Bryce Young with size, do you take the athlete? We talked about stuff within scheme. We talked about, you know, the other attributes that make you a successful quarterback. If you've got all of those things, you've got one guy who's a super duper athlete and one guy who's a, just say average athlete. Do you take the athlete? Or put differently, does athleticism raise the floor of a prospect or just the ceiling? Does being a great athlete make you less likely to be a bust or more likely to have like the unlimited athletic potential to, to really be a truly transformative player. I think it tends to be more the ceiling than the floor. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but a, a couple of theories. First, I think you can look at guys that are relatively comparable as far as athletes and see that they just didn't really, they took very different routes and I think of Aaron Rodgers and Alex Smith, just as a for instance. Both, I think, were better athletes coming out of college than they were given credit for. But I don't think the athleticism was what separated Aaron Rodgers from Alex Smith. And I don't think the athleticism is what allowed Alex Smith to stick around in the NFL as long as he did. I think it just came down to the non-athleticism things that both players had. I think there are cases where um, athleticism does factor into your overall package in a way that does expand what you're able to do, but I don't know if it makes you, again, I don't know if it raises the floor. I think of a guy like Cam Newton, and he certainly was an incredible athlete as at his peak, but I think if you look at his overall quarterback skill set, as he became less of an athlete, you didn't see the other stuff like age with his game in a way that would allow him to continue to still be an effective football player. Once the athleticism was gone, everything fell away. So maybe that is an argument for the floor to, to be higher with athleticism than, than the ceiling. I don't know for sure. But I think that is the sort of approach that you need to have to the to the question. And I think when you have a guy who's just so incredible of an athlete, does that add enough value to the draft pick that you consider taking a guy who's a middling maybe quarterback prospect over a different position? That's where I think things really start to get interesting because if you think – say maybe Richardson is just a late round pick, late first round pick as a quarterback, but uh, just raw talent wise, but he's a super athlete. Does that change your conversation? Maybe you're willing to take him and sit him for a while. That's kind of the approach that the Packers had with Jordan Love, because while Love was not as great of an athlete as Richardson was, he was a very good athlete. And that was part of his skill set the arm, the movement skills, things like that, that makes you much more of a developable player in theory because you've got these great tools. And maybe 
we should be thinking less, you know, about performance or scheme or, or anything like that uh, at all. Maybe tools are really the only evaluation we need to look at. I think that's what I'm trying to get at with the, the floor versus ceiling discussion, because maybe that's a flawed metaphor, but if you think about it like baseball players, you know, the, the five-tool prospect, something like that, maybe that's more how we need to be thinking about quarterbacks anyway. If the game is as different from college to the NFL as we've been led to believe, maybe we need to look at potential to develop. And if you're looking at physical tools as part of something that you can use to help a guy develop, that makes you a much more interesting prospect if you do have this insane athleticism. I think you have to be careful, though, that you don't get suckered in by things like running ability as a primary skill set for quarterbacks. Because even though the game has changed to a, a pretty extreme degree uh, in the way that guys are drafted and used at the quarterback position, I still think that your primary skill set has to be as a passer. What can you offer as a passer that other guys can't? Because if you can't pass, you're still just, well, you end up <laughs> to not, not to sound like Bill Polian, but you're going to end up being a running back or a wide receiver playing quarterback. If you are just an athlete who can just run fast or jump high or, or things like that, you're going to be pretty limited as a player. If you can be a good passer, there's always going to be an opportunity for you somewhere on a roster. How much of an opportunity you get might dovetail with your athleticism. In any case, I think it's worth thinking about these questions I think it's worth talking about them, and I think it's worth seeing how different teams try to implement them as they make important decisions about the most important position in the sport. And I'm interested to see where this quarterback class shapes out, because there's been some interesting movement about around guys like Anthony Richardson, some conversations about these other prospects, and I cannot wait to see how it sorts out in the NFL draft because I think it'll give us a lot of ammunition on a lot of these questions and a lot of new data points to consider. In any case, that's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I'd appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think is going to enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers and about football in general, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.